Let's get into Psalm 19. I've titled this um, message, Sun Worship. Now, hold on. I'm not coming here with any kind of heresy. Um, but actually, in this psalm, David challenges the, the Israelites' idolatry, really. And he refocuses on the sun, S-O-N, not U-S-U-N. C.S. Lewis wrote about this psalm. He said, it's the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And why would a writer of such renown pour such praise on a poem like this? Well, from his perspective as a great literary genius, I think it's because of the literary genius that is evident in this psalm. But also, it presents us with the glory of God. Not only is its structure great, its form, but its content is amazing. It declares the glory of God. And despite treating lofty things, it takes us back to the beginning, back to basics. It recalibrates our perspective. And so as we go through this psalm today, I hope that you get a glimpse of God's glory on display in these pages. And so if you are already on fire for God, I pray that the flames will be stoked to pursue God and his glory evermore. If you're perhaps struggling, I pray that having a glimpse of God's glory will encourage you to pursue him further and to, to cling to him. And if you don't know him, if you don't know God and his son, Jesus Christ, I pray that you'd grasp this gracious invitation and that you would pursue him. So let's get into the text. Let's read Psalm 19. For the choir director, a Psalm of David. The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What a great psalm. It's just so rich. And we've got such a short amount of time to go through it. You know, Pastor John will preach 10 sermons on this passage, and here we are in one. But hopefully we can go through the main points of this psalm. 
So first, before we get into into it, well, let me first describe it. In Psalm 19, we are confronted with the glory of God. There's no excuse. There's no escape. We can't say, he hasn't revealed himself to me. There isn't evidence. It's right there, the glory of God. And so being confronted with the glory of God, the question is, how do you respond today? In Psalm 19, we see God's glory in three dimensions. God's glory in the sky, God's glory in the scripture, and God's glory in the servant. But before we get into God's glory, what is the medium of this message? And what is, who is the messenger? Well, the medium is poetry. And we know that the Psalms are the hymn book of Israel. And today for us, as God's people post-cross, the, the Psalms are the hymn book for the church today as well. And they contain lament, praise, wisdom, those Psalms of Ascent where the people of God would go up to Jerusalem and would recite these Psalms in praise to God and in, and in anticipation of communing with God. This Psalm then is a wisdom Psalm because it teaches us about God. It teaches us general revelation and it teaches us special revelation. General revelation, how God has revealed himself in creation, more specifically in the heavens, and special revelation as God reveals himself in his scripture. How do we know it is poetry? English poetry is quite straightforward. Here's a masterpiece I wrote. There was a young preacher from Britain whose sermons began to quicken. As he got faster, it became a disaster, so his pastor had them rewritten. <laughs> How do you know that that is a poem? Because it rhymes, because it has rhythm. Hebrew isn't quite like that. It's a bit more subtle. It has parallelism and it has structure. And we see loads of that in here. So, for example, which we're going to cover in a second, the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. There's a structure to that. There's parallelisms on both sides. And it helps to explain in more depth and it helps to focus in on particular issues. I was never any good at English, believe it or not. Don't tell anyone where I'm from. In fact, they had um, an entrance exam, an entrance English exam to get to TMS. And if you fail it when you first arrive in orientation, you have to take it again next semester and again next semester. It took me seven tries to pass that exam. So it's a great job that you took it out. They don't do that anymore. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Anyway, here I am. I eventually passed it. But Hebrew poetry, I've really come to love not only Hebrew poetry, but see the, the beauty in just poetry full stop through my seminary training. So praise the Lord for that. So that's poetry, Hebrew poetry. Who is the messenger? That was the medium. Who is the messenger of this message? Well, it's David. There's some debate as to whether David wrote the Psalms and wrote this one in particular. But he certainly could have written it. In um, 1 Samuel 16, 14 to 23, we read that Saul recruited David to play music to ease his troubled spirit. And so David is certainly skilled enough. But so what if he did? Well, now as king, King David, in his role as king to represent God to the people and to instruct them in his ways, in this psalm, he speaks forth of the glory of God, general revelation and special revelation. And we as the people of God today must sit up and listen to what he has to say to the people of God. So we have the glory of God in the sky, in the scripture, and in the servant. Let's dive into the God's glory in the sky. So verse 1. 
The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. I imagine David as a shepherd, sat up on a hillside in Bethlehem, laying in the grass, looking up at the sky as he looks after his father's flock. And he sees the blue canvas stretched out in front of him like a scroll or perhaps hammered into shape as it might look like from our perspective on earth. And the word there connotes that kind of hammering activity. He sees the blue summer sky contrasted with the green grass. Maybe the ominous power of an almighty thunderstorm. Or maybe at night, the vast space with countless stars. The cry of the sky is, God made this. How can we not see that there is a creator, that creativity that is evident in God's creation? Even the structure of this, this psalm, as I mentioned earlier, the way it's written is the heavens are telling the glory of God. Their expanse declares the works of his hands. The way it's written, those two things in the middle are God's glory and the work of his hands. And so we have God's glory and the work of his hands are parallel, telling of and declaring are parallel, and the heavens and their expanse, the sky is parallel. And so with great symmetry, it shows that the heavens show the glory of God. What we can see with our eyes shows us that there is a God, and it tells us something about him, not simply his creative power. We can't talk about the glory of God and not mention Moses asking to see the glory of God in Exodus 34, 6 to 8. And in God's own revelation of himself to Moses, he describes himself as a compassionate God, a God of grace, a God of love. But how do we see that when we look up at the sky? How do we see compassion, grace, and love? Well, if you think about it, the mere position of the earth in the solar system, if we were any closer to the sun, we'd burn up and die. We wouldn't even live in the first place. If we were any further away, we'd freeze. We're in the perfect place for life. The heat and the light of the sun keeps us alive. It gives us our crops. Without it, we wouldn't exist. So day to day, as the sun shines, we live. And that's a common grace. It's not just for you and I believers. But God, in his common grace, allows even sinners to live day to day. And then David continues in his praise. Day to day, verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is this celestial relay race. As day passes on to night, passes on to day, it's as if the creation is shouting, day to day, glorious God, night to night, glorious God, day to day, glorious God, night to night, glorious God, forever and ever and ever, until he comes back and we don't need the sun anymore because God's glory will be present with us. These verses remind me of a time in Malibu. One of the things we've loved as a family is being able to visit the beach down there. And there was one night we were there talking with some friends at the beach. The sun set and we didn't even realize. And then all of a sudden the moon was there, low in the sky, and the moon was reflecting off the, off the sea. It, it was massive. It looks like you could reach out and touch it. Have you ever seen an amazing sunset that's made you just stop? Or an amazing moonrise that has made you just stop and go, wow. It's no wonder that the Egyptians worshipped the sun, I think, with its great power. 
But in this, David is saying, whoa, stop. Don't, rather, don't stop there. Look through creation. Who made it? Who made the sun? Who made the moon? Who made the heavens? God did. Don't worship the created. Worship the creator. And I think there's a message for us in that today. That was the idolatry of the Jews. Perhaps today we don't worship the sun, or maybe some people do. They go looking for it everywhere. But what is the thing that you worship? What is it that captivates your attention? Are you focused on the beauty of creation? Do you love to be out on it? Or do you stop there? Or do you look through creation to the creator? Is this okay like this? Can you hear me okay? (laughs) (laughs) Certainly don't worship this creation. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, where were we? (laughs) On to verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. This is an amazing verse. There's a brevity to it. It punches. While we have 13 words there in the English, there's only seven in the Hebrew. It's if it's saying no speech, no words, no voice. And it jars because it's so brief and it loses the rhythm of the verses either side. It's making a point. What is that point? This vast message of the glory of God in the heavens is proclaimed so quietly. It's deafening in its silence. How can we avoid the fact there is a God in all that he has created and his common grace to us? We were at the beach on Monday. You can see a theme. All my illustrations are beach related. (laughs) And there was a plane pulling an advert across the sky. I'm sure you've all seen them, and I can't even remember what it was for. Yes, the advertisers lost. I didn't remember what it was for. (laughs) Probably some concert somewhere. But the message was unavoidable. It was right there in the biggest canvas available. The advertisers have followed God's lead, really, and are now advertising their products to us in the sky. Well, God got there first. Evidence in Psalm 19. You can't avoid God's message, God's existence. His very glory is evident. So having described God's glory in the sky, David now goes on to explain it. Verse 4. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Now there's some debate, debate about whether this word line should be voice, sound, or line. Well, voice has already been used in the verse before, and Hebrew poetry doesn't tend to do that. They've got such a rich vocabulary, they tend to use parallelisms, synonyms. They use a slightly different word to emphasize different things. So it doesn't seem that it should be voice. It could be sound like a string. The word string is used to create the idea of sound, much like a guitar string creates a sound. But there's little evidence in the Bible of them using that idea. What there is a lot of evidence for is this word line as a measuring line. So in Job 38.5, for example, God in great sarcasm addresses Job, who has wanted an audience with God for so long. Speaking of the foundations of the earth, he says, who sets its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it? And so we see that that term, stretching a line or a line, is to do with measurement of the dimensions of the world and the earth. And you can also see that in Isaiah 34, 17, 
Zechariah 1.16 and Ezekiel 47.3. So it seems to me the best evidence is that we go with line. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. But what does all this mean? Well, to summarize it, the voice of the heavens announcing the glory of God, it measures out the earth and its dimensions. No creature can claim to have missed it. It's, it goes everywhere. Not only is the message loud in its silence, but it's pervasive. No one escapes. Verse, back to verse 4. In them, that's the heavens, in them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Here David is illustrating his point. First he says that despite the power of the sun, God is greater still. He puts the sun in a tent in the heavens. And we can see that when it's night, we're protected from the sun. Although it still does affect us, we still feel its heat, but not quite as strongly. God has ordained that. And while we may know a little more of the mechanics of that, about how the earth goes around the sun and about how we have night and day, that doesn't take away from the fact that that's how God designed it. We have night to shelter us from the awesome power of the sun. And David goes further, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run its course. In Israel, in their weddings back in those days, it would have been the groom that was central, not the bride. And as he left the bridal chamber, as he left his chamber, rather, having consummated the marriage, there would be a pr procession through the town. And there would be great joy as all the guests were involved in that procession and followed the groom around. He was the center of attention. Similarly with a strong man, David simply restates with another example. The strong man was the athlete in those days. The athlete was the center of attention as he ran his fixed course. And he ran it with joy because it was what he loved to do. He probably liked showing off, actually. But these three things, the sun on its course, the groom in his procession, and the athlete running his race with joy. Paul pulls these illustrations, sorry, not Paul, David pulls these illustrations together in the next verse. <coughs> verse 6. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. With joy as the center of attention on a fixed track, the sun does what it does best. It does that which it was created to do. It glorifies God. It points to Him. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. There is no escape. This reminds me of a cloudy day in Colombia. When I went to Colombia to propose um, to Natty's dad, because um, that's what I did, I tried to say it in Spanish and actually proposed to her dad. But um, <laughs> it works. What can I say? You know, it endeared me to him, and he does love me, but not like that. Um, we went for a walk in Colombia. Now, Colombia, Bogota, where Natalie's from, is 2,600 meters up. So it's quite high up. You do get a little bit of um, altitude sickness if you try to do anything strenuous. And it was a cloudy day. We went for a walk in the park. I thought, I'll be fine. Don't need sunscreen. No, I needed sunscreen. This British boy came back lobstered. I was very red. 
And that is a great illustration of this. Nothing can hide from the heat of the sun, even through the clouds. Even in the night, we're still affected by the sun. And similarly, the message of God's glory in the heavens, it doesn't just stop with a beautiful sun. It all points to him and his goodness to us, as that's the way he's provided to us. So God's glory is... God's glory in the skies is described and illustrated in verses 1 to 6. And in doing so, David really cleverly undermines the idolatry of the Israelites. They'd spent years in Egypt, and they, it had evidently rubbed off on them, the, the Egyptians' worship of the sun. And it does beg the question, as David is challenging idolatry, what is the center of your world? You may not worship the sun today, but practically speaking, in what you value, in what is powerful in your world, what your world revolves around, perhaps, what is your idolatry? Well, don't worship the created. Worship the creator. Move on. His glory is inescapable. Nothing is hidden from it. And this isn't a new message. This is how Paul uses this verse in Romans 10, 16 to 18, if you'd like to turn with me there. Romans 10, 16 to 18. Paul is describing how the word of faith brings salvation. And in verse 16 he says, However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So in making his point that no one's got an excuse, everyone's heard, Paul uses this very psalm. Now he's not citing precisely that line because you'll note here it says, their voice has gone out into all the earth. But as we discussed in verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth. So what's the difference? By using the word vo voice from the previous line in Psalm 19 verse 3, Paul is simply citing the broader context. He's not just citing that little bit. We often see that when you see the New Testament use of the Old Testament. They may not be citing a particular verse. They might be looking at the broader context. That may lead us to think, well... Does that mean general revelation can save us? Well, we know that it can't. But Paul has already described in Romans 1 what the response should be to general revelation. So let's turn over to Romans 1 from verse 18 to 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they're without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So Paul says no one has an excuse. We've all seen the glory of God in creation. More than that, we've seen some specifics, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. 
And our response should be, according to Paul, to honour him as God and to give thanks. It should at least make us inquire, well, who is this God who even gives me life? Who gives the sun? Who gives the summer and winter and springtime and harvest, as we sang earlier? So general revelation announces God, but it's special revelation that introduces us to him. And that's where we move to next. God's glory in in the sky And then we move to God's glory in the scriptures from verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Here we have six aspects, attributes, and effects of Scripture. They're synonyms for the Word of God. And one point of note is, in the first half that we were looking at, verses 1 to 6, God was described as the Creator God. The word for God there is this generic word that even the pagans would use to reference God as the all-powerful Creator. Now with this abrupt change to the description of special revelation, the word Yahweh is used. This isn't some distant creator God. In a sense, there is an invitation to get to know him through his word as Yahweh, the covenant God, reaches out to us. The law of the Lord. This is, not, this is the word Torah, which refers to the first five books of the Bible usually. But here it's not meant in that technical sense. It means generally the law, the manual, if you like, the manufacturer's operating instructions. It is perfect. It's without fault. It is complete. And because of that, it is able to restore the soul. Now, this word for restore, it is actually the same word used for repent. And so it's as if to say our soul, our very being, which incorporates more than just our body, but the essence of who we are, is heading in the wrong direction. But because the law of the Lord is perfect, it's all-encompassing, it's complete, it knows just what we need to put us back on the right track, to turn 180 degrees away from death towards life. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And there it is. And because of this, you know, psychology doesn't do it for us. Psychology won't diagnose the problems of the soul. Or we might chase after things. We might chase after money. Whatever we chase after isn't good enough because it's not complete. We never get filled. We need the law. We need God's law. Because it is complete, it can diagnose all problems and it can point us in the right direction It turns us 180 degrees toward life. The testimony of the Lord. This is a a courthouse term, his witness. It is sure. This means it's established. It's not going anywhere. It's immovable. Much as a child might reach out for their parent's hand as they're going to stumble, the child has the faith that the parent's hand is going to be there. Although, bad, bad illustration. A couple of times I think I've dropped Sophie. But you get my point. 
They reach out for the parent knowing that they're going to be there for them. Because of that, it makes wise the simple. It's steadfast and immovable. And the Proverbs speak a lot about the wise compared to the simple. The simple are those who are naive. Pastor John describes it as those with an open mind. And if you were to say to a Hebrew, I've got an open mind, they'd say, well, close it. That's how Pastor John says it. But it's the word of God that closes us for it for us. Our mind should be as open as the word of God and no more. The precepts of the Lord, these are the step-by-step procedures, the legal directives. This is what he wants us to do and how he wants us to do it. They are right. This means they are straight. They're not crooked. They are true. And because of that, they rejoice the heart. Walking right, doing what we're meant to, rejoices the heart. Much like the sun on its fixed straight course and the groom going through the procession in the town and the strong man running his race, they're doing what they're meant to. The sun in particular is doing what it's created to do and it is joyful as a result. When we follow God's precepts, which are straight, we should rejoice. It brings rejoicing because we're doing what we're created to do. Commandment. I think we all know what this word means. The things that God commands, the things that he says, the things he wants us to do and not do. They're pure. This word pure and clean in the next verse, they are close synonyms, but they each emphasize a slightly different aspect. This word pure kind of talks about cleanness in a radiant sense. It brings light. It is light. And as a result, it enlightens the eyes. And this Hebrew turn of phrase, it not only gives clearness to vision, but it shows the way as a result. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We know that one very well. Fifth, the fear of the Lord is clean and enduring. This word fear, it actually is emphasizing the effect of scripture when it uses the fear of the Lord. We fear him because of how he describes himself. That should be our right response to him. And clean. The emphasis on this synonym is that it's without contamination. If I drink from a, I've, I've said admission time here, confession time. I sometimes drink from the bottle of milk from the fridge. Natalie does not like that. <laughs> and why does she not like that? Because my germs get in the milk and then it goes off quicker. Scripture has no impurities, and that's why it lasts forever. It endures because it is squeaky clean. It's without fault. Number six, judgments. These are the pronouncements and the decisions of God, and they are true. But more than that, while in the scripture here, we, we, in this translation, we see the word true. I think truth is better because true is more of an adjective. It's as if to say, well, here's the, the standard of truth. And yes, Scripture matches up to it. They're true. But I think we should use the word truth instead. Like John 17, 17, your word is truth. Sanctify them in your truth. Scripture is the objective standard of truth. They are not merely true, but they are the essence of truth itself, primarily because of who they come from. They're rooted, Scripture is rooted in God and his character. Because of that, they are righteous. 
Scripture is the objective standard of righteousness. We know what is right and wrong clearly because the Scripture is truth. That was a quick overview. Six aspects, attributes, and effects that show the glory of God. It's like a diamond in its different facets. It's bright. It sparkles in different ways. Or if you prefer another illustration, you could say it's like a multi-tool. It's got different shapes. It's got different aspects that you can use for different things, but it is all the Word of God. As we apply it in different ways to different situations, it is all-encompassing. And we also see the elements of the gospel. When we look at its attributes and what it does, it describes a holy God. It describes sinful man that needs to be straightened out. It describes the need to fear God. It at least infers that we need to trust, believe, and obey. Furthermore, we look at how it has worked. It even saved me. Scripture saved you. Not only has it saved us, but it sanctifies us as we apply it to our lives. And because of that, because of its effect and just what it is, Scripture is, we read on to verse 10. They, that's the different aspects of Scripture, the Scriptures are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. What do you value most in your life? What are the sweet things that you crave? When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you seek after? I suspect it's probably a phone, not scripture. I only say that because that's what I do. When life gets tough, where do you turn? Is it to scripture or is it to something else? Do you bury your head in the sand? Do you have other things that distract you? Or do you come to scripture? with all its different facets, and get your life straightened out, living to the glory of God. If Scripture does what it claims to do, and it does because we've seen it in people, then why is it not what you value and crave? Let this psalm recalibrate you to come to Scripture and use it in those different ways with the things that it does. If you're not valuing and craving it, it's possible because, first, you're not reading it, Second, you might not be submitting to it. That was special revelation described, and now David goes on to apply it. Moreover, by them, verse 11, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Warning and reward, curses and blessings. For those of you that have children, you'll know this mantra. Obedience brings blessings. Disobedience brings discipline. That's the one I would have used. Some say consequences but I need to make it rhyme so I remember it. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings discipline. There are two sides to Scripture. It warns, but it rewards. But notice this phrase, in keeping them. The keeping of them itself is the reward. It's not transactional. It's not as if to say, as God's coming to us and saying, you do this and then I'll give you that. God is actually saying, in keeping these things, you will be rewarded. So it's not that we should expect something else after that. Deuteronomy 4.40 describes this for us, as he tells the Israelites through Moses. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. In keeping them, there is great reward. It will go well with them if they keep his commandments. 
and we know that it did not go well with them because they did not keep his commandments. And today we see this reality as the nations throw away God's God's ways increasingly, as they reject God's version and the only version of marriage. And the list goes on. And we see society crumbling because God's word doesn't have prime of place. They want to do their own thing, as Romans 1 explains to us. Sin abounds. And also in Deuteronomy 4, but a bit earlier, in verses 6 to 8, Israel's obedience, his very, their very obedience was to point to God. What a great nation has a God so near. As Israel kept God's commandments, the nations would be attracted to them and God would be glorified as a result. In keeping them, it goes well for us, but God is glorified. His word is proved true and we find reward. Even among unbelievers, there is a common grace for doing things his way. If unbelievers get married, there is still a blessing within that as compared to if they don't. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. David recognizes that there are two dimensions to sin. There are the buried sins and there are the blatant sins. We know from Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, the answer, Scripture can. The buried sins that it speaks of, this word errors, is described elsewhere as the wandering of sheep in Ezekiel 34, 6. Or even the effect of wine in Isaiah 28, 7, where you can't walk straight for being too drunk. Proverbs 5.20 describes it as being enticed away by a woman or the effect of evil instruction in Proverbs 19.27. So this word errors is about not walking straight. It's about being enticed away. It's about stumbling. There's a certain aspect of these not necessarily being deliberate sins, not things that we set out to do, but we got waylaid. If we stick to scripture, that won't happen. The blatant sins, presumptuous, deliberate, where we pridefully know the boundaries that God has marked out and we go and do it anyway. Well, when we stick to scripture, we see what sin is. We can call it what it is. And also it can undo the sin in our life. It uncovers hidden sins and it transforms life. Verse 13. Also, Keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transaction. When we put the spotlight on sin, when we use the scalpel of scripture to do its work, we're kept free from sin. Psalm 119, 11, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. As we store up God's word, We're able to have our eyes enlightened to see what is right and what is wrong, but also to see the hidden sin within us and to be kept from it by the power of the Spirit. Don't let them rule over me. This is a kind of kingly term. We get the word marshal from it. Do you submit to sin or to Scripture? Scripture applied will make you blameless. God is glorified in that as it transforms our lives Because his word proves true. It does what it says it will do. We've seen God's glory in the sky, God's glory in the scripture, and now we have God's glory in the servant. 
When we apply God's words to us, to our hearts, we can say this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. From some stuff I've said so far, you might think, well, does mere compliance with God's word save us? Well, of course, we know that it doesn't. The very fact that it said the law of Yahweh, the word of God, there is a relationship there. We need to have come to God. And as this verse attests, we need to be able to call him Redeemer. When David wrote this, he was probably looking back to start with. For example, in Joshua 1.8, we see similar words. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have success. Sound familiar? And so there is that context that David is bringing in here. We have been redeemed. We have a redeemer. He enables us to keep his word. Deuteronomy 30 describes that. As Moses is about to come to the end of his life, he prophesies of the future disobedience of Israel. He spells out the need for further redemption. And in that, God enables obedience when we are redeemed by him. David also looks forward to this future redeemer, though. We know that David had a messianic outlook from some other Psalms. And post-cross, we can look back knowing about the cross and knowing that we are redeemed. And so we can appropriate scripture to do what it says on the tin to do what it says on the label because we are redeemed and his spirit is within us this all acts a bit like a funnel we see god's glory in the skies all have no excuse we see god's glory he exists our response must be to honor and give thanks to him even if we don't know him but there's the invitation to know him through scripture, God's glory in scripture, that we can live as we were meant to be. And then God's glory in the servant as we come into that relationship with this covenant God who has redeemed us. So for the Old Testament saints, that was Yahweh and his promises that they had faith in of a Messiah to come, a Redeemer to come. The New Testament saints saw that in Christ Jesus as he was revealed as that very Redeemer and redeemed them and us from sin. This enables us not to sin. So if you're on fire today for God, I pray that as you've seen God's glory in this psalm, that it would recalibrate you. What do you value? How can you value scripture more? How can you make it the center of your universe? If you're struggling with God, is he there? I just basically want to encourage you look up look up from your troubles and see the sun and feel its heat on your face and realize god is now here you can't escape from it there he is but don't stop there come to his scripture where he has revealed himself and his ways and that will give you the perspective you need to do things his way and to call things as he calls them and if you don't know him today you have no excuse because he's revealed himself in the skies. Come to scripture, read about who he is and what he's done and how he sent a redeemer to pay the price for the sins that you've committed in your place lovingly. Believe on that and then you'll have that relationship. 
and you'll be saved instead. You'll be saved and not have to pay that price. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glories of your word. Not only your word, but your, your creation that points to you so loudly, yet so silently. May we never miss the, the, the wood for the trees. May we, all, may we ever focus on who you are. Not see the world from a worldly perspective, but from the perspective that you describe in your, world, in your word. Lord, may we value your scripture. May it be the center of our universe so that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.